As Tammy mentioned in her prayer, we are in the middle of a 12-week season of trusting the Lord, and uh, that involves for us a lot of prayer. And uh, in this 12-week prayer projects that we've been involved with, an exciting time was had by a lot of us this past weekend where we did a 24-hour cycle of prayer, and everybody signed up for a time slot. And as a part of what we're hoping that God's going to do in us as we seek Him is that He was going uh, to show us more of Himself. He was actually going to take the time where we were seeking Him about needs that we have and ask Him to show us some things. And one of the things we reflected on in the actual project that was a part of last weekend's exercise was to make a list of all of the things that we are grateful for. We had a list of 40 things we could do, um, and I had a, a whole envelope that I put together, and, and this has, um, if you, you can see these out front actually, there, there were 40 slots where you could remember the things that the Lord has done for you. Now, you say, well, why do I need to do that? Well, I was amazed at how many things I'd actually forgotten that God had done in my life, and I really tried to, to not just put, thank you, God, for you know, Xbox. Uh, I I really wanted to thank him for ways that he moved in my life in a meaningful way. And I began to think back of all these experiences I'd had over the years and was surprised when I discovered that there were some things that I hadn't thought about in years. And, And one was this formative experience I had as a college student. It was really the first experience I had of surrendering to the idea that Jesus was the one who controlled the destiny of my life. Uh, I was a a Christian student at West Virginia University, which is a notorious party school. And so in our dorm, nice people, but they were drinking a lot. And as a young Christian, I knew that was something I couldn't do well, so I just didn't do it at all. And uh, and that makes you sort of stand out like a sore thumb at WVU. Uh, And one of the things uh, I discovered at the end of that first year was that they were going to offer positions as resident assistants, which, we got, which would get you free room and board. And I thought, that would be a great job. I'd like to do that. I'd like to be on the leadership team of the dorm. But somewhere in that process, I realized that I had a reputation as somewhat of a Jesus freak. I led a Bible study at the dorm. I was the guy who was like the designated driver all the time. And, and sometimes, you know, I'd hear that people were you know, saying things about me just because, I I don't know, I made them remember that grandma was praying for them or something, and they get their nose out of joint, and, you know, I got nasty looks and things. And it just dawned on me that the people that were making the choice as to who got to be this resident assistant um, probably had that in mind. And, And I began to be anxious about it. Now, maybe you can understand that feeling. You've been in a place where you wanted something. You wanted someone. You wanted a job a possession of some sort, and you thought, I have to have this in order to be happy. But somebody is getting in the way. Some person controls, the, you know, is holding the purse strings. Somebody is going to be an irritant to my plan to accomplish something that will give me joy. Perhaps you've never been there before. I have multiple times where I begin to think that people are actually capable of messing up God's plan for my life. And it was this moment in my experience as a Christian where I came to terms with it finally, where it dawned on me that if Jesus really was alive, and he really was, as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks here 
at PRISM as we've been delving into the Lord's Prayer as a guide for how He taught us to pray. If He really was the King and He really was the one who was risen and had all authority in heaven and on earth, if Jesus really was the Lord, then there was nobody that could keep me from what He wanted for my life. I had to mentally exercise what I say I believe, namely what we were taught last week about our Father hallowed as the all-powerful, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent Savior, King of the universe. He alone determines whether or not we get that job, marry that person, receive that cherished possession. Jesus spoke about the nature of understanding His sovereign kindness when He told us not to worry, but instead to seek first the kingdom of God. Now, we bring this topic up because in our series on prayer, the Lord first taught us to pray saying, Our Father. And then last week we saw that He also said we are going to have to have a proper reverence for who God is. He is to be hallowed. And then the next instruction we received was to pray, Thy kingdom come. So if you look in Matthew 6 where our capacity to not be anxious is tied to a seeking of this same kingdom, you have to come to terms with what actually is the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven was a huge part of both the teachings of John the Baptist and Jesus. It was John who said in John chapter 3, verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 4, 17, it says that from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? I have been moved to discomfort at hearing some super theologians talk about the kingdom of God and brush up against the notion that it might be a theocratic government that we're supposed to be involved in setting up here on earth. And there are some people that think that, and that's a bit scary, and I'm a Christian and a minister. And I can't imagine how people who are not Christians, when they hear that kind of rhetoric, react. Why would Jesus command us to pray, your kingdom come? I mean, what is the kingdom if it's not a theocracy we're called to set up by force? Well, the kingdom of God isn't found in the Old Testament, the phrase, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. But the hearers of Jesus' teaching knew what Jesus was talking about because it's laced throughout the Old Testament. The psalmist wrote in Psalm ten sixteen, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. King Jehoshaphat said in 2 Chronicles 26, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nation. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. God's people at that time, while expecting a king, could not comprehend how the kingdom was going to function. They were promised a Messiah and were now being told that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, was this promised king. However, Jesus' kingdom was going to and does transcend earthly kingdoms. It rules over the earth and all the kings of the earth. We are citizens of Christ's kingdom, committed first and foremost to his rule and his kingdom principles as they guide our lives. Think about it like an invisible kingdom with our Savior in heaven, He's guiding us, so whether you're Canadian or Mexican or 
a citizen of Los Estados Unidos. We are all dual citizens. We are all dual citizens of this earth and of a kingdom that is Jesus' kingdom. In the Old Testament, Israel was given the opportunity to have God alone be their king. They refused this. And that inability to live under God's leadership here on, her, on earth was another example of our need for a Savior to rescue us. As citizens of Christ's kingdom, we are committed first and foremost to His rule and His kingdom's principles. Oftentimes, these principles run counter to the principles of the country to which we also claim citizenship. Whatever culture, whatever kingdom of this earth that might be. Jesus, for instance, said, the last shall be first. He said, if you wanted to be the greatest, you were going to be the servant of all. Jesus said, there's more joy in giving than receiving. Theologians these days like to refer to these as the upside-down values of the kingdom. In our passage today, Jesus even mentioned this challenge that faces all of us. Which king are we going to follow? Matthew 6, 24, he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. For that matter, you can't serve God and anything else. As Bob Dylan used to sing back in the 60s or early 70s, depending on how old you are, you got to serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. And for many of us, we're just serving ourselves. And in, in King David's time, he was brought along because the nation of Israel said that they didn't want just God. They wanted to be like everybody else. They, they wanted to have the security that other nations had. They had a great setup. They needed the right political system in place to be able to live at peace. And, and God showed them that they needed him more than they needed kings. Nonetheless, they had kings. And we live in a world that is ruled by queens and kings. But Christ's kingdom, which is overall and in all Christ followers, should and does manifest itself in our world. Jesus came to redeem us and serve as the king who would rule over us. And he taught us to pray that on earth we would see the values of this kingdom. On earth operate for his glory as freely as they operated in heaven. So what I'd like to do today is take this concept of the kingdom and then kind of do what Jesus did, which is see how that is melded to our capacity to not worry or get consumed by the things of this world. We ask today, how does his kingdom come? And what does it look like to see his kingdom in us? When we pray, thy kingdom come, what exactly are we asking for? So we begin with this thought from Matthew 6, verses 31 through 33. With regards to his kingdom coming, our pursuits become and are for his prominence. This is the ultimate move for us as new followers of the king. It becomes about the celebrating of the king of our kingdom. Jesus says this, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father 
knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There are two pursuits that Jesus calls us to in this passage. He calls us to seek Him first, to not do as the Gentiles do and seek after the things of this world. Now, to seek after something doesn't mean that you're not concerned about providing for your family or that you don't take care of your basic needs or that you don't work hard in your workplace or that you don't try to achieve success. To to seek after these things means they define us. They are our life source. To seek after a career where you work 90 hours a week oftentimes is not about providing for your family or even succeeding out of necessity in your field. It's about a, a compulsive, a compulsion, a compulsive drive, a compulsion to have to have other people say, you are successful, and until they do, you're just going to keep grinding it out. We're called to two pursuits in this seeking of his kingdom. The first, he says, would be a pursuit of his purity. In Matthew 6, it says, and his righteousness. See, Jesus' character, his attributes are seen in our actions. And we do these things not so that God will like us any more than he already does. He certainly can't love you any more than he already has. We, we obey him not just because he's the God of the universe and deserves to be obeyed. We obey him and follow him and follow his principles for living inside his kingdom so that people will see him in us. It's so that he'll be glorified. He'll be exalted. That people would say when they see this behavioral modification in us, not what a great servant of God you are, but instead, what a great God you serve. It shouldn't be about people seeing you. It should be about seeing people seeing Jesus in you. Pursuing righteousness is not optional for a believer in Jesus Christ. We must obey our king. But more importantly, our king's attributes will be manifest for all to see. His kingdom will come through our actions. But as I mentioned before, some of these principles are tough to buy into. Some of these things, some of these upside-down values are counterintuitive to us and cause us to think, well, The world does it this way. I have to do it this way or I'm just not going to succeed. We've been called, according to Scripture, to a transformation of our mind. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 12, 1 through 3, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect his kingdom come his will be done this is how we discern the will of God the will of God is that people would see him in us that our lives would be sacrificed that in in our lives we would see such a transformation of how we live that others would recognize the work of Jesus in us But to undergo this transformation of our minds by the truths of God's realities in Christ's kingdoms, in Christ's kingdom, we have to actually know the king. The upside-down values of the kingdom make little sense to those 
who don't recognize that Jesus lives and reigns at the right hand of God with all authority in heaven and on earth. If you and I don't really know who Christ is, the likelihood that we would give our lives to principles that are counterintuitive and often countercultural is very low. We're called to pursue His purity. We're also called to pursue His presence because to develop personal purity, you'll first need to seek the King and His kingdom. As I've said before, many of us have erroneously thought of Christianity primarily about getting into heaven after we die. When people say eternal life, they think, well, of course, that means when I get you know, a sickness or I end up in an accident and I die, then I go on to eternal life. But what Jesus is calling us to is life that begins today and goes on for eternity. See, eternal life begins today. Yes, after we pass from this earth, we are secured in an eternal relationship with God in heaven. But again, it is eternity with him. I've often erroneously thought when I was a youngster that it was kind of like getting a free pass to Disneyland. You know, you get in and then you just play around. It's not like you'd ever meet Walt, you know? It's not like that was the purpose. You get in, you just have a lot of fun. But the object of this whole kingdom of God is different than the magic kingdom. We actually go into the kingdom of God and we actually, the whole point of it is to fellowship with the Creator. And so if, if you're like living the Christian life and living the Christian principles, but you have no soul interaction with your Creator, you're going to burn out at some point because it's going to become about you and not about knowing and enjoying Him. We pursue His presence because our soul longs for it. But making a determination to seek his kingdom first is a commitment on our part. And it requires us to recognize that Jesus is not only Savior and King, but the creator to whom we owe our lives in the first place, let alone the redemption that he's purchased for us. We were made to be his, and apart from him, we'll only know discontent. We'll seek first our pleasure and our sense of purpose in patterns set by the world around us. But if we're to know real life and real joy, we'll only discover it, pursuing it the way our king says we should. I have to tell you that one of the sole struggles of my life has been wanting other people to affirm who I was. And one of the upside-down ways that God has called me to deal with that is to make as many rooms as I go into about other people and the exaltation of others. See, if you're compulsively saying, who am I? Then the way you address that is by focusing that energy on others and primarily on the kingdom and on Jesus. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity, quote, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really 
be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. His kingdom comes as our pursuits are done for his prominence. His kingdom also comes as, and this is the real beautiful benefit and the byproduct of seeking Christ first, is our peace comes as we recognize his providence over all things. And this was in context what Jesus was really compassionately trying to tell them. You're, 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 you're using up all sorts of energy in the pursuit of these things. You're getting anxious about them. And I love what he says here, verses 32 through 34. The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He's saying, why would you get consumed with something that your rich father has already said he's going to take care of? He knows your needs ahead of time. He's promised to take care of you. Why are you spending all of this emotional energy? Why are you getting anxious over things that he said he'll take care of? We're called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Jesus contrasts this with what people do, the ones who don't know him. They seek after all these things. But we're told not to be anxious and think about things like, what do we eat? What do we drink? What do we wear? Where are we going in this life? What kind of career will I have? How come these people don't think more highly of me? How come I don't have the money that this person has? We're consumed with these thoughts. And our peace comes from knowing that our God is sovereign and has all these things that we need in mind. The king, and in power over all things, knows that he is going to providentially arrange the circumstances of our lives. And I've struggled with this too. Trusting God that if I don't have something, according to his word, I didn't need it. And if I do think I really do need it and I don't have it just yet. I may have to come to terms with the fact that my timing necessarily isn't perfect. Whereas him being the perfect creator of the universe, he's got the whole world in his hands. He knows what he's doing. So the question is, am I going to set my mind on his capacity to providentially arrange the circumstances of life, even the difficult things? And I struggle to believe that when people are working against me, that God is still in control. But the scriptures assure us that God controls the hearts of all kings. That he rules over all kingdoms. Proverbs 21.1 is one of my favorite verses. I've had to memorize this one just to cope with anxiety. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You know... God doesn't wrestle with whether or not whoever our country is going to elect as president is going to screw up our country. God could change that in a heartbeat, whomever it is that's going to screw up our country, because obviously somebody's going to do it. <laughs> I know from my standpoint that the gospel has offered me a great deal of joy and peace knowing that Jesus knew that evil people, if you'll pardon the expression, were screwing up the world. And in particular, they were making his life hell 
They tortured him and crucified him. He submitted himself to that. God sovereignly knew that the pathway to our life with him was through what Jesus would purchase. And the only way that happens is if Jesus walks in life while bad people do bad things to him. And yet God managed to manage it all. He seemed to be okay. Jesus, while he struggled with trusting the Lord, ultimately the scriptures say he endured the cross and scorned its shame because he could see in his mind that the Father's will was to be trusted, that he was sovereign even over the bad things. That's really challenging. You know, the only place you and I are ever going to be able to achieve that kind of lasting peace to retain a sense of real rest even amongst the most difficult of life's circumstances is to be certain in our heart that God would never let anyone come between where He would want us to be. But to retain this peace, we have to daily focus on Him. We have to daily be at rest and in fellowship with our King. We have to daily be reminded of these truths. This can't just be a Sunday fill-in for us. We can't just come here and have like the one encounter we have with God for the week and expect that to produce peace in us. We've got to find places in our lives where we can be reassured on a daily basis that God has the day's events lined up for better or for worse, and, and He's got it all in His hands ultimately to bring about his best and his glory in our lives. We must set aside time to fellowship with the king to be reminded that he'll meet our daily needs. And it's only in the enjoyment of Jesus, of knowing our king, of being at rest, being his citizens, that we're willing to consider to live our lives directed by what he wants and allow his kingdom to come into our lives. Don't know if you're familiar with the name Lilius Trotter. Lilius Trotter was born in London on July 14, 1853, into a wealthy family during the golden age of Queen Victoria. As a child, she grew and devoted her life to Christ, even as she discovered her natural ability for art. The wealthy circles in which her family traveled enabled her to be introduced to the famous 19th century British artist and scholar John Ruskin. And Ruskin took an immediate interest in her development. As a student, he said of her, she seemed to learn everything the instant she was shown it, and ever so much more than she was taught. And to Lilius, he wrote, I pause to think how I can convince you of the marvelous gift that is in you. You see, Ruskin had championed such artists as Dante Rossetti, And he was prepared to advance Lilius' career, not only developing her art, but all of the things that would come with it, a promotion of it, great wealth, great recognition. But his offer came as he sensed that her Christianity was a little too important to her, that her work in inner city ministry was a distraction and it was affecting her development as an artist. And he told her that if she wanted to become, quote-unquote, immortal, that she was going to have to give herself up to art. Well, it's clearly agonizing. This was clearly an agonizing decision for her. And she deliberated long and hard in prayer and then came to the conclusion 
that she couldn't devote herself at that level and carry on the work she felt called to do. She wrote, I see clear as daylight, I can't give myself the painting in the way he needs, and continue to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, many of her friends and family members were shocked and disappointed by her decision, but she spoke of it as the liberty of those who have nothing to lose because they have nothing to keep. Then later in May of 1887, she heard God call her clearly to take the message of Jesus to the people of Algeria. And by the time of her death in 1928, she'd established 13 mission stations united to bring the gospel to the people of these lands. She also authored several books. And in one of her writings, Which Passion Will Prevail, she said something that I think is worth hearing. And it also provided the inspiration for a a famous chorus, a worship chorus that many of us know. I'll quote from her book. She said, and remember this was written in the the late 19th, early 20th century, nearly 100 years ago, and, and her insight really is still as applicable today. Never has it been so easy to live in a half dozen harmless worlds at once. Art, music, social science, games, motoring, the following of some profession, and so on. And between them, we run the risk of drifting about, the good hiding the best. It is easy to find out whether our lives are focused, and if so, where that focus lies. Where do our thoughts settle when consciousness comes back in the morning? Where do they swing back when the pressure is off during the day? Dare to have it out with God and ask him to show you whether or not all is focused on Christ and his glory. Turn your soul's vision to Jesus and look and look at him. And a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him. It was in light of this particular writing and a life of sacrifice that Helen Lemel, a music teacher at the Moody Bible Institute, penned the following now famous refrain. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we pray, as Jesus taught us, thy kingdom come, what we are saying is we want the realities of who Jesus is to transform us into citizens of his kingdom that will bring the glory of Christ to our world. So let's pray to that end today, shall we? Father, we're humbled that you work through us. We're humbled that you, Lord, uh, have never had anything but broken people to work with. And so we're, we're grateful that we have the opportunity to be used by you to uh, see, help others see you. But fundamentally, Father, what we come today to the communion table to do is be refreshed and restored in you. Lord, if, if we don't know that not only are you really genuinely the king of the universe, but that we can find life in you, if that isn't real to us, if, 
if we're not engaged with you, we will never process the challenges of this world, some of which you've ordained to come to us. Um, Father, all of which you've ordained to come to us, that, we've, that we would never see them for what they really are. It's coming from you to produce something good for your glory. It all starts with us finding life in you and looking to you regardless of our vocation, that our heart would be set on discovering you each day.